You Belong Here, part three. I want to talk to you on the subject of making room for people. Making room for people. That's what this is about. That's what this whole week is about. That's what our prayer is about. That God will use us as a church to make room for people. The kingdom of God is about bringing people back to God. That's what it's about. It's not about who could preach the best. It's not about who can have the biggest building. It's not about who can have the greatest ministry. It's about bringing people to God. And listen, God uses all kinds of different churches to do that. We are not the best church. We're just a different kind of church. But we're going to be the best version of ourselves that we can be so that God can use us to bring our friends and family to Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we're praying, and I'm so excited for it. John chapter 2, take out your Bibles. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Before we get to the text, I want to ask you a simple question. What is your favorite subject? What subject do you have no problem talking about? I mean, once somebody asks you about it, you just start rattling off facts and figures. You don't have any problem discussing it. I got, I got an answer for you because I, I know what your favorite subject is because it's my favorite subject too. Here it is. My favorite subject, your favorite subject is myself. I like talking about me. Now, I don't like talking about my facts and my figures. I, I, I like talking about things that interest me. You like talking about things that interest you, right? Somebody brings up your, I don't know, trade, your hobby, and you just rattle things off. Somebody brings up something about your history, maybe, I don't know, something that you went through or a discussion or something, and you can just go off for about 30 minutes about that subject. No problem because you've been through it, and it's near and dear to your heart. Or maybe you're a parent. You love talking about your kids. Maybe you're a grandparent. You love talking about your grandparents. I don't know who I'm talking to. Maybe, have you ever met someone? Maybe you're one of these people. Please don't be offended. But you ever, ever meet somebody that just loves to talk to you about all their ailments? They just don't, they always have something wrong. And it's not about an age thing. It's not an age thing. It's just a, it's just a mindset thing. They're always telling you, oh, I got this thing in my back now. I got this thing in my knee now. And, you know, it, maybe it is a little bit of an age thing because the more older that I get, the more I am talking about those things. What's not working anymore, again, because the older you get, the more injured you feel. But the fact of the matter is, no matter who you are, there's always something that you have no problem talking about. And there's always something that you love to talk about. Well, I, I, I know what God's favorite topic is. I know what God's favorite topic is. And I want you to write it down because I've read the Bible and I know it now. Absolutely certain on this. God's favorite topic is bringing people to himself. He loves to discuss this. He is all in on this, by the way. He doesn't just love talking about it. He loves doing it. He loves bringing people who don't know him, who might doubt him. Hey, he even likes bringing people who hate him to himself. Just ask Paul the apostle about that. When he was Saul of Tarsus and he hated God and God came and got him and brought him back to himself. This is God's favorite topic. The whole of the Bible is about God bringing people to himself. That's what the story of the scripture is. Sin separates us from God. God doesn't leave us in our sin. Thank you, Jesus. He sends prophets. He sends priests. He sends kings. 
and in Jesus Christ, he's got the final priest, the final prophet, the final king, all three in one, and Jesus even laid down his life for one purpose, John 3, 16, so that those who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And when you, when you lay down your life for something, you know you're all in on that thing, amen? God was willing to do that for us. That's the heartbeat of the church. And that's the heartbeat of our church. And that's the heart of John's gospel, believe it or not. John's gospel has a point. You know, every book has a purpose. Why am I writing this book? Well, John's gospel tells us why John the apostle wrote the book of John. It's actually at the end of the Bible. It's at the end of the book. John chapter 20, the key verse, verse 30, it says this. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written... Somebody say the next two words. So that. These things. In other words, I wrote this down so that you, you might what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I, I love when the gospel writer tells us why he's writing. And this is one of those places. This is one of the few books where it's absolutely clear, this is why I'm writing to you. And John's purpose is crystal clear. All of this has been recorded so that you might know, well, who's the you? Anybody. Whosoever will believe. Anybody, the, the worst sinner in the world and the most holiest saint in the world who thinks he's, he's perfect. Everybody in between that they might know that Jesus is the Christ and might have life in his name. And a good church, listen to me very carefully, a good church always wants to champion God's favorite topic. We're not here for ourselves, amen? We're not here just because we wanna feel like we're good people going to heaven. We're not here, we're not here just to have potlucks and cookouts and chili cook-offs. We're here for people. We love to say it in this church, we'll say it again, we are here for those who are not yet here. That's why we're here. And so that's what this series is about, and that's what John's gospel is about, and that's what Jesus' mission is about. Now we're gonna talk about a place in the Bible where it seemed like Jesus was kicking people out of the church, but he wasn't. He was cleaning house. And he was cleaning house for a purpose. It's the cleansing of the temple. Uh, and we're going to go there. We're going to read it. Let's stand together for the reading of John chapter 2, verse 13 to 20, right to the end of the chapter, 25. Here's what it says. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when, he saw the, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we approach this word with openness in our hearts, and we ask God for even more openness. Open our hearts that we might receive the truth of your word, the seed that goes into the heart, that germinates, that sprouts from our innermost being and changes how we live. May we receive what you want for us to receive, and may we see Jesus, him and him only. In his mighty name we pray, and everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a seat. Cleansing of the temple is one of only three events that appears in all four Gospels. You know that there are four accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Four accounts of Jesus' life, all four of them, only three events of Jesus are in all four. So these are significant events. The first event is this one, the cleansing of the temple. All four Gospels, and we will talk about what all four Gospels bring to this story at the end of this message. But the second event is the feeding of the 5,000, and the third event is the um, death, resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus. And so this moment is huge because the tabernacle, the temple, was the most significant building in ancient Israel and in Israel still to this day. God called Abraham 3,500 years ago to follow him, 3,500 years ago. And about 400 years later, he raised up a guy named Moses to deliver them from, from Egypt and to give them a land of their own. And the first thing he says is, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to build a temple, a, te a place for us to meet together. In the ancient world, it's called the tabernacle. This is a picture of the tabernacle here. It was a very simple structure, humble, made out of sheepskins and goatskins and achaia poles and, 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 and priests. And there was, there was no throne. There was no statue in God's tabernacle. Why? Because the, the second commandment prohibited the making of images in the likeness of God. We don't do that as Christians. Jews do not do that. And so there was just this temple with a place to sacrifice and present blood to God in a way to come back to God. And so the tabernacle was built and erected by Moses in the wilderness. About three or 400 years later, David says, I want to build a permanent structure. This is too, this is too humble. This is too, this is too little for our great God. And so he gets in his heart to build a, a permanent glorious temple. And God says, no, David, you're not going to do it. But your son will do it. The son of David will build a permanent structure. And so Solomon comes along and he builds, and this is an artist's rendering, of Solomon's great temple that was erected about 900 B.C. And it stood for maybe about 200 years in peace. And then eventually Israel kind of forfeited their opportunity, forfeited their God calling to worship God and to be God's people because they followed the pagan practices of the nations around them. And God brought judgment where? On his temple. This is incredible. you got to think about it. God destroyed, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to come in and destroy the temple. And so in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes in, burns the whole thing down. 
starves out the people, takes their best and brightest young minds captive into Babylon. Some of them you know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, yeah? You know those names? Those were, they, were draw, they were dragged up, and as they were leaving the city of Jerusalem, that's the last thing that they saw, their temple being burned, God's temple being burned. And about 70 years later, God speaks through a, a pagan king named Cyrus. How many know God can use pagan kings? He's not restricted by whether or not you believe in him. He can use anybody. That king was named Cyrus. He was the king of Persia. And in 517 B.C., he lets the Jews, he decrees that the Jews can go back to their land and rebuild the temple. This is an amazing, amazing gift to the people of Israel. And it was to show them that God, their God, was always in control. It didn't matter if he had a temple that was standing or a temple that was demolished. He was God of gods and Lord of lords and King of kings. And he can use anybody to accomplish his purposes. Remember that when the next election comes around. Amen, somebody. So, so they come back. And Zerubbabel, a, 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 pro, a king descended from David, comes back and leads the people to rebuild this temple. And in this picture you see, it's, I found this on the internet, but this is a, a drawing of what it was like when they rebuilt the temple. And you'll see some people are excited and praising, and some people are weeping and crying because they remember the glory of the old one. And it's not the same. It doesn't look as good. It doesn't look, it look, at it, look at how bad it is compared to Solomon's temple. But, but God was faithful and he showed up in that temple. And, and that temple lasted maybe in peace for about, oh, I don't know, 100 years out of 400 years. And then Jesus goes into that temple. But before Jesus goes into that temple, there's a king, a great king in Judea who was not really Jewish. And to secure the favor of the Jews... This guy said, I'm going to do them a favor. I'm going, to, I'm going to make this temple as glorious as it can be. His name was Herod the Great. And in, and in B.C. 20, he started this temple. Now, this is actually a picture of what Herod's temple looked like. We have accurate records from Josephus and other historians as to what it was like and the size of it. And this is a picture of a replica that stands about... 300 yards away from the remains of Herod's temple today in Jerusalem. I, I, I've been here. I've seen this little miniature picture. But Herod's temple was ornate. It was glorious. It was gorgeous. The Jews loved him for it. They celebrated Herod the Great. He died in uh, A.D. 6, shortly after Jesus was born. You know, the last thing he tried to do was kill Jesus. And then God killed him. Amen. That's how it goes. And then God, uh, then the Jews and, 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 and the Judeans worked on Herod's temple, and it wasn't completed until A.D. 64. Even when Jesus cleanses this temple, it was still being finished. So it wasn't even completed until A.D. 64. And that's significant because <laughs> once it was completed, it lasted exactly six years. Six years and the Roman general Titus marched into the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and destroyed the temple again. Now, this thing has been destroyed and built and destroyed and built and destroyed and built. And uh, if you go to Jerusalem today, you will see the last remaining segment of wall of this temple. This is the remains of Herod's great temple. Still stand. The last one. It's called the Wailing Wall. And I was, this is a picture that I took in Jerusalem with some pastor friends there. There's a men's side. There's a women's side. And you can't go across, right? They don't believe in that stuff. Amen. They're old school. Praise the Lord. 
And to this day, people go in and they stuff little papers in the crevices of those bricks. And to this day, the Jews travel from around the world, and Christians too, by the way, travel from around the world to pray and to weep over that temple. This is the most significant building, you could say, in the world. The Eiffel Tower has got nothing on this temple. The Statue of Liberty has got nothing on this temple. 3,500 years. Now, here's what I share, share all that history for. It's been around 3,500 years since Moses. And out of that 3,500 years, you have approximately three to 400 years in which it stood in peace. Now, I don't know about you, but if you spend 3,500 years building something and you only get about 300 years of peace living in it, how many know you want to think something's wrong with that, with that building? Something's, maybe I'm in the wrong business. Maybe God is not interested in the temple. No, 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 no. He's absolutely interested in the temple. Here's what he wants, though. He wants the temple to do what it was meant to do. And when it doesn't do what it was meant to do, God has no problem bringing judgment on his temple. This is significant for us because what you have to understand as the church of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that we, we are the temple now. God does not dwell in buildings made by men. This building in Apollo Beach, those buildings up in New England and in Guatemala, those are just buildings. When, when you leave the building, I got news for you, God does not sit around here waiting for you to show up next week. He lives inside of you. He goes with you. You and I are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are here to do what this building, to do what that building was supposed to do. What was, that supposed to, what was that building supposed to do? It was supposed to bring people back to God. The people, and, and, and the, reason why God, the reason why God brought judgment on the temple so often was because the people forgot what it was for. I want you to write this down so I know you're getting it. The people who loved the temple often forgot the purpose of the temple. And here was the purpose, bringing people to God. Over and over and over again, God says to the, to the ancient Israelites, he says, when you come in and come before me, in the temple. In other words, we're gonna have a house, we're gonna have a little place where we meet together, me and you, God and people. That was the purpose of the temple. And Jesus walks into the temple that day, in John chapter two, because once again, the people who loved the temple often forgot the purpose of the temple. You know, we can do that in modern Christianity too today. I, I don't know if you ever, been to a church where it was impossible for the pastor to change anything with regards to the building. You know what I'm talking about? The guy changes the carpet and somebody freaks out. My great-grandmother paid for that carpet. And the pastor's like, yeah, and it smells like your great-grandmother. That's why I needed to go, amen? Or if he changes the venue or he changes the building. Oh, look, it's just a building, friend. It's not about the bricks and the mortar. It's not about the stone. It's not about the carpet. It's not about the curtains. It's about Jesus. That's what this place is for. This place is here. This building is here so that the temple can come in and gather together. And we can be a place where people far from God can meet with our God. 
What if we forget that? If we forget that, man, watch out. Then Jesus has got to do what he's going to, what he's going to do in this text. He's got to come clean our house again. So let's take a look closer at the text, see how it goes down. Verse 13 says this, the Passover. Somebody say Passover. Passover of the Jews was at hand. Let me tell you about Passover. Passover for ancient Israel was the day in which God made them a people, delivered them from Egypt, delivered them out of their slavery. Remember the story? If you've, if you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, you know this, right? Put the, put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lintels of your house. And when the death angel comes through, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every house. But if I see the blood, I will I will pass over you. This became an annual festival. God commanded them to remember this. This was kind of their New Year's Day. It was also kind of like their Super Bowl. We're a couple of weeks away from that. Super Bowl comes around and all of America focuses on a little box in their house. Well, in ancient Israel, they would come together in Passover and they would focus on a little lamb in their house and they would raise that lamb for five days in their house and then they would kill that lamb and they would eat it and they would celebrate that God made them a people through the death of a lamb, pointing to Jesus, the final lamb. And so he comes in and the place is packed because Jews came from all over the world to celebrate Passover. You couldn't watch Passover on your big screen TV. They didn't have them then. So you had to go, you had to travel. Some people traveled up to 800 miles across the ancient world to come and celebrate the Passover. Jesus goes into the temple and he finds people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers. And there's a problem here that we're going to unpack why he gets so angry and does what he does in the next verse. But let's read the next verse first. It says he made a whip of cords. <laughs> I don't know about you, but one of my favorite <laughs> passages in the Bible is, is right there in John chapter 2, verse 15. <laughs> you ever think about that our Savior made a whip? I've never made a whip. Have you made a whip? I mean, this, is, this was not... This was a functional whip, too. This was not a whip for him to sell on Etsy. I mean, he wanted to put this to work. And he did. He, he wove it together. Jesus wove it together, went into the temple, and started driving people out of the temple. Look, some of you, some of you have got a half one-sided vision of who Jesus is. You, you've got the meek and mild Jesus down. You, you, you love that Jesus. He, he's the Jesus with the flowing robes and the Swedish haircut. He's the Jesus who puts the little baby lamb on his shoulders and he walks around. And it almost is like he's not even taking steps. He just kind of floats everywhere he goes. And he's meek and mild and he's kind and he's compassionate. And let me tell you, oh man, that's, that's 100% accurate. Jesus is meek. He's mild. He was gentle. By the way, you know who he's most gentle with? The worst sinners. He's going to be gentle in two cha three chapters with a woman at the well who's been divorced five times. Amazing how hard we are on divorced people when Jesus was absolutely gentle with her. He, he, he's going to be divorced. Uh, he's going to be uh, gentle with the woman caught in the act of adultery. They're going, to, they're going to throw her down and say, let's kill her. And he's going to say, no, no, no. Who's got, who's got no sin? Go ahead, start. Gentle. He's going to be gentle on the cross. With his mother, as she watches his, her own son die, he's going to be gentle there say, to John, you take her now into your home. She's now your mother. He's now your son. And Jesus is gentle with Peter, who denies him, isn't he? He's gentle with the, when he restores Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? Gentle Jesus is absolutely true. But there's also righteously angry Jesus. So you got to get this. 
He has a holy anger. And he was absolutely angry on this particular day. And he made a whip and he went into the house and he drove them out. He flipped tables. Man, I've been a pastor for 25 years. I've never flipped a table in my life. Kind of thinking, am I doing it right? Maybe I should. He flipped tables. The scripture says he took the coins out of the money jars and the literal, the literal Greek here is he threw the money on the floor, just scattered it. I mean, this is our Jesus, angry, livid. Why? Well, I'm going to explain why. Like I said, it was Passover, and, and the city of Jerusalem had an ancient, a, a first century population of about 100,000 people, about 100,000. When Passover came around, the population ballooned to 4 million people. Now, that's a lot of people for a city to suddenly have, you know, zone in on that one little geographic spot, right? Well, Herod's temple had a couple of places for different kinds of people. And I want to put this up to show you. This is uh, an artist's rendering of Herod's temple, again, second temple on the Temple Mount. And you'll see that in the middle of the area, there is the main structure, which was the temple, which is where the priests and only the priests could go. So this is the priest section right here. This section was the women's section. Jewish women could come this far. Priests could go this far. And men could come and they could also offer their sacrifices in the temple through the priests. On each side of the temple, there were these huge areas, these open areas. And I'm going to highlight them in this next image so you can see how big they were in comparison to the temple. Almost about the same size of the temple area on each side. These were called the Gentile court. Now, what is a Gentile? A non-Jew. Anybody who's not Jewish, good news, you're a Gentile. Okay? Italians, Hispanics, um, all the other ones. <laughs> we're all Gentile, except for the Jews. These are, so Jew and Gentile. And there was two big areas on each side of this temple for, for Gentile. And here's another definition of a Gentile. Someone who is far from God. And the Lord wanted this space on each side of the temple so that people far from God could come and know the God of the Jews. So that strangers could come in. So that there would be room for people who were not like them. Are you hearing this? When Solomon built the temple, he prayed specifically for that purpose over the temple. Look what he says. Look what it says here in 1 Kings uh, chapter 8 about the temple. Solomon praying, when a foreigner who is not your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear your great name and your mighty hand and outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand how groundbreaking this was in ancient times. I mean, if we think we have racial hostility now, we've got nothing on the ancient world. These people hated each other. And the size of your temple dictated the size of your God in comparison to other gods. 
And you never shared your God with other nations. In fact, you used your God to destroy other nations. And what Solomon is doing here is groundbreaking. It is world-changing. And he's saying, here's what I want. Here's what God wants for this house. He wants this house to be a place not to dominate other nations, but to invite them in. Not to, not to crush other people, but to care for them and bring them to the one true God of heaven and earth. The temple's purpose was always for people far from God to come and know this God. And by the way, that was the purpose of Israel. Because God says in Isaiah chapter 42, he says, look, I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the what? What was Israel's purpose? To be the light for other nations. By the way, Jesus will say about the church, He'll say, you are the what? You're the light of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, some of you work in a dark place. You work in a dark business. You work in a dark office. You, work in a, you just wonder, why am I surrounded by these pagans all day? You are there as a light for people to know that they don't have to walk in darkness anymore. You are there on purpose. God has placed you. You might know, not know why he's placed you there, but God in his infinite wisdom said, I need to put a light bulb on in that dark room, and even if you shine just a little bit, at least they know there's someone with some peace in their heart because the Prince of Peace reigns in their heart. That's who you are. That's who I am. That's what we are here for. That's what ancient Israel was here for. So now let's put the piece of the puzzle together. I already talked about those two big wings on each side of the temple. That was for the Gentiles. When the population of Jerusalem exploded at Passover and four million people flooded into the city, it was all right to have money changers because here's the deal. People came with different kinds of currency. The, 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 the problem was not that the, the money changers were there. You needed to exchange coins so that they could come in and, and do business and economics in the proper manner. And it was also not a problem for the oxen and the sheep and the pigeon sellers to be there. It wasn't a problem. Do you know why? Because some people traveled, like I said, from 800 miles away. And to come and travel 800 miles away in the ancient world was, was near impossible. Now imagine traveling that far with all of your animals you got to sacrifice when you get up. In the Jerusalem. I mean, some of you, is, um, how many of you are like me? It's, it's incredibly hard to travel 90 miles by car with kids. Imagine traveling 800 miles with horses and donkeys and then bringing your oxen only to sacrifice. So, so listen, they made, what, what they were doing is they were trying to help people. Like, don't worry about traveling with animals. We got them for you. Change your money, buy the animals, and then sacrifice. It wasn't, that wasn't the problem. It wasn't that they were there. It was where they were. And as the Jerusalem population exploded during Passover, four million people descending on the city, you know what you'd do if, you know what happened on that day? The money changers like, there's no room outside the temple. Here's some nice open area where the Gentiles come. They don't matter. Let me move my shop in on that space. And what God, Jesus, so angry that day was that they were using a place for people to come to know God as a place for them to do business. They believed their business was more important than God's business. They believed that they should take the space that was reserved for people who were far from God. And, and it was like, if I could do it in a modern analogy, it's kind of like Black Friday. 
I, I hate Black Friday. I don't know about you, but I avoid stores on Black Friday on purpose. And what I really hate about our country is it seems like Black Friday is like this monster that keeps mo- moving more and more to overtake Thanksgiving. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Now, in New England, they have blue laws where it's not allowed, but I, I don't know if it's here allowed, but in some states, it's allowed for stores to open on Thanksgiving. I think that's disgusting. Like, we can't even be thankful for 24 hours before we get greedy again. This is the image of Jesus in that temple that day. They, have, they were taking consumerism and pushing it into a place of sacred space for people to meet with God. Here's what Jesus was doing. He was declaring, my father's business is the most important business on the face of the earth. And that business is bringing people back to God. Point number one, if you're taking notes, write it down. The business of God is to make room for people far from God. That's why Waters Church Apollo Beach, faithful, faithful, God-fearing people up in Massachusetts decided to put money toward planting this location. You are here because they were there. They, you are here, this building is here because they said, let's make room for one of the most fastest growing states in the country so that there are gospel preaching churches in that area. When, when the rest of the nation escapes, whatever they're escaping, to come to the freedom of Florida, let's make sure that they don't just find political freedom, they find the freedom that is in Jesus. Yeah, that's why we're here. Amen. But that's why we'll also go to multiple services in our churches. Why we'll always be on a building campaign and looking to build for another church, another location. Why? Because we want to be in the business of God. And the business of God is to make room for people far from God. Verse 17 says that it was written, zeal for his house will consume him. Jesus is zealous for this. He wants us to make room for people far from God. Now, when he, when he tips over all those tables, the Jews got questions. Rightly so. And verse 18 tells us their question. They say, hey, what sign are you going to do to show us that you're allowed to do this stuff? Now, you have to understand that the Jews believe that when Messiah showed up, he would perform miracles and signs. And so they're saying, okay, are you the Messiah? If so, do something. Show us the sign. And I love Jesus' answer. Here's what he says. Here's the sign you're going to get. I'm going to destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, they respond, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you nuts? Who who do you think you are? But, But I love what John says in verse 21. Just to make sure that we're clear from our perspective, he says, but the but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now you gotta know something about the word temple in the English tent. Translation, our English Bibles fail us here in this chapter. Because in the original language, the Greek language, there are two words for temple. There is the first word that shows up, it's called hieron, which refers to the whole temple structure. And that's in verse 14 and 15. And then there's this word in verses 19 and 20 and 21 that refers to the naon. That is the inner structure where God and man met in sacrifice. And so Jesus here is referring to the inner sanctuary, the the inner temple structure where God and man met. And he's now saying, I'm taking this place. Now the place where people will meet with God is not a structure built by men. It's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and I'm going to put it in the ground, and I'm going to raise it up again, and that is going to be the sign that shows you that I've got the right to do this. I'm taking charge over what you have failed to do, and I'm going to make it possible for people far from God to come close to God because there's only one mediator between God and man, and it's not the Republican Party, and it's not the Democratic Party, and it's not our senators and legislators. It's Jesus Christ, and everybody is one person away from God. God the Father, Jesus is that way. I love that. You know, you know that you have just as much opportunity to pray to God as I do. <laughs> you know that, right? Like, let's get, some, let's get some work done for this morning, all right? You can pray to God and be heard by God just as much as I can. That's the priesthood of all believers. Because you don't come in the name of Tim Hatch. The name Tim Hatch does not resonate in the halls of heaven. God knows my name, but he doesn't act because of my name. He acts on my name's behalf because I am in the name of Jesus, his son. Jesus is my mediator. He's your mediator too. You got one mediator, one name, one temple through which all people come. And you could be a prostitute and come. And you could be a politician and come. And sometimes you could be both and still come. And how many know you can do that on a regular basis in this country? It doesn't, it's not about the building now. It's about the person. And this is what Jesus came to do. Point number two, the business of God is to change the hearts of people who draw near to God. So we put out in our uh, South Coast location and outside here in our Apollo Beach location a big sign. Big sign that says what? Come as you are. <laughs> come as you are. It's been a theme of our church from day one, but it's come as you are, but uh, it's not stay as you are. Some of you are like, well, God loves me just the way I am. No, 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 no. That's a, that's a rock song. That's not the gospel. He loves you in spite of the way you are. And he loves you into the house because in the house you get changed. It's come as you are so that God can change who you are. Look, you all know you need change. It's January. You've already given up on the New Year's resolution. So that, that issue has been settled. You know you're messed up. You know things need to change. It's just you don't know what needs to be changed and in what order it needs to be changed. I got good news for you. Your architect, your builder and maker is God Almighty, and he knows exactly what area of your life to work on. And he's got a plan and a purpose. In the pain, in the problems, in the difficulties, in the questions, in the confusion, he's got a plan right now, and he's working out all things for your good so that you might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. There's a little curious passage here at the end of John 2. Seems out of place, but it's not. Jesus has just clean, cleansed the temple physically. But look what it says in verse 23. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to, him, to, himself to them because he knew all people. So I, they might look like they believe, but some of them don't really believe. Then it says this, and he needed no one to bear witness about him. Man, because he knew what was, last two words, everybody, in man. Uh, Jesus knows what's in me. He knows what's in you. And from this point forward in John's gospel and onward, 
Jesus is gonna do one simple thing. He's gonna separate people. And John chapter seven, verse 43 says it like this. There was a division among the people over Jesus. There's this false image of Jesus in our world where, where Jesus, everybody, everybody loves Jesus, everybody Jesus, Jesus loves everybody, everybody Jesus, Ooh. The John Lennon Jesus doesn't exist. Jesus separates people. And he separates, here's what he does, he divides, write this down, he divides followers from hearers. Not everybody who hears follows. Not everybody who follows hears. You gotta ask yourself, am I a hearer and a follower? And that means that I will not just listen to what he says, I'll do what he says. That, that's what Jesus does in John chapter six with the people when he feeds the 5,000. He gave 5,000 people free food. Ladies and gentlemen, when you give 5,000 people free food, guess what happens the next day? They come back. In fact, Jesus gets out of that area, he goes across the Sea of Galilee, and he lands in another area. The people are so hungry for free food, they go all the way around the Sea of Galilee, and they travel into the next day, and they show up, and they find Jesus, and they're like, hey, what are you doing here? And Jesus says, you're not here for me. You're here for the food, but I want you to know I'm the food. You gotta eat my flesh and drink my blood, and the scripture says from that moment forward, many, most people no longer followed. They were hearers, not followers. See, you know you're a follower if you're letting Jesus change who you are. You're only a hearer if you're just interested in Jesus fixing a few things that you think need fixing. I've been a Christian my whole life and I've realized one inalterable fact. The things that I think need fixing and the things that Jesus thinks needs fixing are often different. And the process of discipleship is me learning to surrender what I think needs fixing and to embrace what he thinks needs fixing in my life. See, some of you... God is confusing you right now. God is confusing you right now. I don't know why he's letting this out. What is going on? What is it? He's fixing you in the ways that you need to be fixed. Don't resist it. Don't let bitterness get up in here. Don't let heartache come in here. You say, Father, into your hands, I commit my life. Just like Jesus on the cross. Point number three. The business of the church is to work and pray so that people find their way to Jesus. So this is the business of God to make room for people and to change people. So where do we come in? Here's where we come in. we got to work and pray to make sure that that happens. Now, I already said to you that this story of the temple cleansing appears in all four Gospels. It's only one of three stories that appears in all four Gospels. Kind of interesting. Kind of important then. In all four Gospels, the three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, bring something to the table about this moment that John doesn't bring. But I want to bring them all together to show you what this was all about. So let's go to Mark's, Matthew's Gospel. Matthew tells us that Jesus wants to, letter A in your nose, fill God's house with prayer. Clean out the stuff that doesn't belong so that he can fill it with prayer. Here, here's something you got to listen. God wants to clean out the economic relationship you want with him and put in a direct connection of relationship with him. Prayer. Economic relationship with God, oh God, if you will, I will. 
That's an economic relation. God, I promise to go to church next Sunday if you will. Okay, God is not like that. He's not a loan shark. He's a father who wants connection with you. Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer. And then it says this, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he what? He healed them. That's, what the, that's why we pray. We pray for healing. At the end of all of our services, at all locations, we ask for people to come in. You want prayer? We will pray for you so that you might be healed. Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, letter B. Jesus wants the house to be filled with hospitality. There's a little notation about Mark's gospel that is kind of interesting about the temple cleansing. It says this, in, in Mark chapter 11, verse 15, it says, he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. <laughs> you ever see this? You ever think about this? Jesus is like, okay, I've cleaned house, now don't start bringing stuff through again. Why? I need you to keep the path clear. Because someone's coming tomorrow. Someone's coming next week. We never know when someone's coming through. And let me just say, Waters Church, all locations, you never know when someone is showing up on the verge of suicide to one of our church services. You never know when someone is showing up and they just got the report from the doctor. You got one week left. You got one month left. You got one year left. We never know. So have some hospitality. Be open to serve, to give, to make room. That's why we ask you to serve, by the way. That's why we ask you to park cars, make it easy for people to come in, check in kids. And when you check in kids, smile. When you greet people, smile. Some of the people in our church that are absolute heroes at every location, you know who they are? They are the ushers. They are the people who deal with the fact that we are asking you to sit somewhere you don't wanna sit. There's reasons why we ask you to sit certain places so that we can make room. You know why we do? We ask you to sit toward the front. Do you know why we do that? Do you know why? If you're a Christian, sit toward the front because someone might be coming in who's hungover and they don't want to be in the front. And I've seen it happen. I've seen people have to sit in the front because for some reason, the best seats at Amelie Arena or Fenway Park are in the front, but the best seats in the church, for some reason, are in the back. Why? Why are you so in love with being close to a hockey player when you could be close to this? Amen? Come on. And you better say amen or I'm going back to Massachusetts and preaching up there. We, we, we want to make room for the hungover guy who did too much drinking at Gasparilla. Amen, somebody down here. Come into the church and hear about Jesus Christ. And who knows if he doesn't turn into the next pastor, the next missionary to the lost people of this world. We never know what Jesus is going to do with the soul who walks in our church. Make room. Be hospitable. Number three, Luke's gospel. God's house must be filled with truth about Jesus. That's what, that's what Luke's gospel teaches us here in Luke chapter 19. Jesus, after he cleanses the temple, says, it's written, my house will be a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. What was he teaching them about? He was teaching them about himself because he was the truth. And Jesus says in John 8, 32, what? You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Um, 
here's the deal. Some of you are looking at the world right now and you are just seeing how crazy it is. And you're like, I don't even know if I want to live on this planet anymore. And you're wondering, what is happening? Didn't it, didn't it seem like it was last week when everybody thought there were two genders? And we didn't celebrate men dressing up as sexy women and dancing in front of children. We didn't think that was cool. Like two weeks ago, it's been like that fast, that fast, that fast, that fast. Wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, plagues, pandemics. It's not going to get better. It's, it's going to get worse. Jesus said, when these things happen, know that I am standing at the door. I'm coming back. We're not shocked. We're not appalled. Well, we might be appalled, but we're not shocked because he told us this was going to happen. So what's our response? Throw our hands up in the air? Give up? Castigate people? Call them? No. This is our opportunity. When the devil is done chewing them up and spitting them out, we can tell them, you belong here. We got a seat for you. We're waiting for you. Because Jesus waited for us. And he can change you just like he changed us.